Hey there, everyone on Radio Pulpit and Radio Cape Pulpit down in the Ferris Cape. You are with me, your host, Mark Penrith, alongside Teppo Pitzel. We serve at Crystal Park Baptist Church, taking care of the souls of men, changing light bulbs as and when necessary, and hosting uh, on Fridays from 9 o'clock until 11 o'clock, Table Talk with Mark. This morning, we are going to be looking at questions and answers from God's Word. I'm excited to hear the curveballs that you send in and the various different questions that you pose. Uh, Always enjoy this segment uh, of questions and answers. How might you ask a question you rightly pose? Uh, And the answer would be this. If you would like to engage with us, if you would like to ask a question, make a comment on something that we're talking about, you can uh, drop a note on WhatsApp or Telegram. The number is 0826572729. Get those voice notes rolling in. If you would like to speak to us live in studio, the studio line is 011. No, it's not 011. That would make it a, a, a Joburg number. It is 34. One three two two. I would love to speak to you live on air. Uh, feel free to call in your various different questions. Uh, you can tweet. The number is at six five seven a.m. And whether you are listening to us this morning on DSTV, Open View, if you are on radio, which is my favorite channel uh, for engaging with talk radio, or on Facebook or whatever other channel you are on, I do want to say hi. Uh, Drop a note and tell us where you are listening in from, recognizing that we have people from Benoni, from Pretoria, and even from the Mother City uh, this morning. Uh, As usual, I greet a friend, Michael Swain. Michael Swain is the executive director of 4SA, Freedom of Religion, South Africa. Uh, He studied law abroad. He has been a very successful businessman. Uh, He is a co-founder of the His People, Every Nation Church Movement in South Africa. And um, Michael joins us this morning to talk about, amongst other things, uh, a new development in terms of the hate speech bill and comments that can be made on that. Um, And then also this morning, Michael, you and I are going to be talking a little bit about the disaster management amendment bill. What on earth do Christians and churches have to do with that? And how are you doing? Doing great. Thank you. And as always, great to be on your show. Uh, Just love being here every week. It's so good to be able to give an update. Cool. Well, I mean, I I kind of promote what, what you and I are going to be chatting about. Um, but really, what, this disaster management amendment bill, uh, what has 4SA um, said about it? Uh, what, what has been the discussions? Where's this bill sitting? Um, and is this something that we need to be immensely worried about? Well, maybe to give you a little bit of background, of course, as we are all aware, uh, ever since the uh, COVID-19 pandemic began, a government basically declared a state of, of, of national disaster. And it's interesting that uh, there are basically two options that government has when something really catastrophic uh, hits a nation. And the one is obviously to declare a state of emergency. And the other is this um, Disaster Management Act. Now, I think it's important to take a step back and say this, that we live in a constitutional democracy. In other words, we have and are granted 
and guaranteed by the Constitution certain rights. These rights, yes, they are uh, vital, but they can be curtailed. And there is a section in the Constitution, Section 36, which basically sets out the parameters under which government can actually limit or curtail those rights. Now, interestingly enough, in a, in a state of emergency, all rights are suspended. But the important thing about the state of emergency leg legislation is that every 21 days, Parliament, basically, in other words, the whole of the legislature, the whole of government, has to come back and extend it for another 21 days, because that's exactly what it is designed to be. It's designed to be for an emergency. Now, the National Disaster Act was really not designed for an emergency. It was designed for something like, for example, say, uh, God forbid, but a tsunami should hit and there would be some, you know, very serious but almost localized situation uh, which happened, or maybe it would have affected the whole country. But it was not designed for something which would simply roll on and on and on. And one of the problems with the um, Disaster Management Act is that there is no uh, legislative oversight. There is no parliamentary oversight. So effectively what we've had and we still have are a, a relatively small group of the executive effectively deciding and decreeing what happens within South Africa for everybody without the uh, opportunity for parliamentary oversight, parliamentary intervention, and so on and so forth. And frankly, as we've seen, this particular piece of legislation can be extended and extended and extended. And the responsible ministry for the oversight of uh, this Disaster Management Act is, of course, COGTA, the Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs Ministry, which is presided over currently by Minister Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma. So this obviously gives uh, a small group of the executive significant powers. And what they are able to do effectively is to rule by regulation. And as we have seen, regulations come, regulations go, regulations chop, regulations change, regulations contradict themselves, regulations are, in the, certainly in the case of the religious sector, uh, evidently unfairly discriminatory against the religious sector from time to time. But there is very little recourse that one can have, um, other than, of course, what 4SA has done, which was during the total lockdown, as you might recall, which has now happened on two occasions where other similar sectors of the society have been allowed to operate, but the religious sector has not, to then open up a court action for unfair discrimination. And our court action, by the way, is being heard in the Johannesburg High Court from the 22nd to the 24th of November. But again, that's a long time to wait. And the reason why we've had to wait so long, by the way, is because when we bought our original action, uh, literally on the steps of the court the day before, uh, the president actually brought forward his announcement to basically amend the regulation so that our case would actually not be um, current. It would be what they call moot because he kind of like shifted the regulations a little bit again uh, so that we didn't have a case. But then you might recall a couple of months ago when, again, religious uh, meetings were completely banned, but restaurants and gyms could operate. We then got the hearing date. So we're very happy with that. And we're very happy of the importance of setting a precedent, uh, which will tell government that they cannot arbitrarily simply shut down the religious sector or treat it unfairly unless they can provide extremely good reasons and a rationale why they can. So the National Disaster Act is actually, if you like, the overarching problem. And 
a bill has been introduced to Parliament, basically to make a government under this particular piece of legislation more accountable uh, to the legislature. And that is, of course, very important because government should not be allowed to simply extend and extend and extend just a, a small executive branch. Uh, it's almost uh, complete uh, power and control, uh, unless, of course, there is input, not just from the ruling party, by the way, but the uh, aim of this amendment bill is to make sure that the need for um, further consultation, even public consultation, public participation, grows and increases with the length of time that uh, a national uh, state of disaster continues, as does the sort of numbers of the majority of MPs who have to vote for such an extension. So it just brings a greater level of accountability, and I think that is critically important. And, you know, we, for I say, were in Parliament basically saying that we supported that, and we believe that Parliament especially must consult with people to get their input for regulations, which currently, of course, allow the state to unilaterally make regulation by law. So that was essentially what we were doing. Uh, we were in there, as always, fighting for faith and for freedom. I mean, absolutely fascinating conversation. Everything that you are saying obviously syncs with what we are seeing around us. Uh, if, I, if I've understood at, at the, just the broadest brush strokes uh, what you've said, two pieces of legislation that, that could be used uh, in the states of the, like a pandemic. The one would be the state of emergency, which, which really is designed to affect the entire country, maybe in the case of an uprising or something like that. And then the state of disaster, which really one would expect to see it utilized in a provincial or a, a city kind of circumstance where there has been an, an earthquake or, or, or t like you said, a tsunami or, or, or something like that, that needs to be very quickly contained and maybe, maybe finance is driven towards. But, but really, we're like entering our second year of this craziness, um, you know, uh, and, and we're, we're still under legislation that really allows just this handful of people to make decisions on behalf of the entire country. And so it makes perfect sense that, that this is reinvestigated, that this comes before Parliament. I, I mean, who, who initiates this kind of check and balance or this kind of, of change to the law? Is this a, a case of, of parliamentarians self-regulating themselves and saying, hey, look, this has gone on long enough. We, we need checks and balances here. Or, or is there other external pressures which have forced this reinvestigation? I, I, I'm so intrigued. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was a private member's bill. It wasn't introduced by the ANC. But I mm. think the important thing to say, for example, is that it, it will prevent, we, we, we believe, the type of arbitrary uh, regulation that we've seen. And I'll give you just one example, because I believe that, uh, you know, this is still negatively and unnecessarily impacting uh, a, a sector of the faith community. When we met, and this was back earlier this year, when there was obviously a very low rate of infections uh, with the president and everybody in the faith community from across the faith spectrum was asking for the president to reopen to 50% of the capacity of a venue. Everybody was nodding, the president was nodding, but when the regulations came out, there was a numeric cap of 250 uh, people indoors and 500 outdoors. You might remember that. But if you think about it, given that we are supposed to be science-led and to only basically have our rights limited if there is 
reasonable and logical and justifiable uh, you know, evidence as to why they should be. How is it possible, therefore, that a venue such as the one that I um, used to uh, belong to at, at the History of Every Nation Church in Cape Town, or, and there are others, which literally seats thousands of people, why are those people more at risk, uh, for example, in such a large venue than they would be in, in, in a much smaller venue that would maybe just allow that capacity of, of 250 people? Obviously, we're talking about social distancing and sanitation and hygiene protocols, etc., in place. And it's, simply these things don't make sense. And it was never designed, this National Disaster Act, as a long-term solution. But unfortunately, that's what it's become. But that's why it very importantly needs to be amended. So it, 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 it is going to be something like, watch this space. But um, I, I, I really do trust and believe and hope that it will go through. Because interestingly enough, the parliamentary portfolio committees have also been very unhappy because effectively they are the oversight uh, as well. And they have not been able to function properly during this time in many instances. Absolutely fascinating discussion, Michael. So, uh, I mean, in a nutshell, what then was the 4SA submission? And where, where to from here? I mean, do you have any ideas of timeframes? How, how does this work out? Well, no, our submission was essentially to support the bills and even to try and expand uh, the bills um, amendments to grant a greater level of public participation you know for example typically the faith community um the faith community aren't really consulted they're sim simply told what to do or what's going to happen and we, we we've seen that you know the promises that that, that have been made perhaps or the um uh, certainly the, the the hopes and appeals that have been put forward uh, have simply it, it's been a sort of a you know you, you'll tip your the government will tip its cap to them but it doesn't actually really take them seriously and as a consequence th th there has been significantly a uh, significant impact upon the faith community and perhaps an unnecessarily significant impact but of course at the moment in the absence of uh, any form of check and balance from parliament or even any check or balance from a legal precedent which is what we're obviously trying to set when we go to court finally in november uh, then government can literally chop and change whatever it wants. And if it thinks that it's going to be knocked out because it's been too extreme at one instance, literally they will just suddenly knock it down. And then again, what, what can you do? So they can change it wherever they want. When you get a legal precedent, of course, when there are principles in place from a judgment, for example, then if government then infringes those, you can go immediately to court. You can get emergency, if you like. It can be an urgent application and you can get relief from whatever government has imposed because they have now clearly violated uh, legal precedent and legal principle. And then whatever they've done can then be immediately overturned. Whereas at the moment, it just simply morphs and chops and changes, you know, um, whatever they particularly want it to be at that particular time. Oh, Michael, e excellent, excellent information. Uh, as I'm listening to you, I, I am realizing just how important uh, this is. And I, I'm, I'm keenly gonna be watching for press releases uh, from 4SA in terms of uh, which way this goes uh, and when the legislation has been secured. I, I have been watching you guys quite carefully on Facebook over the last month or two and just noticing that a number of the decisions have been going the way of the freedom of religion and expression in South Africa and, and that's been quite 
I, 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 for lack of a better word, I, I've actually been relatively excited. Uh, whether it was um, uh, clarifications around hate speech or whether it be your latest press release regarding um, uh, 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 teaching comprehensive sex education in schools, it just seems like there's a little bit of traction in moving forward in terms of uh, uh, in, in terms of um, uh, some kind of semblance of uh, of rational thought in a number of areas. I hope that continues in in this particular area. Ma Michael, I mean, obviously, I just raised the hate speech um, bill, and uh, maybe you can just give us an update uh, if. Uh, in regards to where that is and, and how things are going forward. Uh, I realize it's currently open to public comment. Um, and, you, you know, I, I, thought it, I thought we had commented already. What's going on? Well, yeah, you know, uh, again, and, and when you say we're having some relative victories, and that is very important that, to note that we are. And 4SA is certainly contesting as best as we can uh, and as... And as <laughs> As, as effectively as we can, but it very much involves in the instance of, say, legislation for public participation. And it is so critical that the public do get involved. And I think one of the things that is, um, or maybe the public needs to be aware of is that you, it's no good that you just simply comment once on an issue, because sometimes a bill, for example, the hate speech bill, it goes through a number of a different uh, processes uh, where, for example, initially it's released by the Department of Justice who drafted the bill and they put that open for comment. Now, interestingly enough, that's what happened when the hate speech bill first came out and we and others mobilized and over 70,000 submissions were made because the hate speech bill in its original format would have literally criminalized. And again, for the first time in legal history in South Africa, uh, hate speech, uh, so-called, will become a crime that can put you in jail for three years on a first offence and five years on a second offence. That is a pretty radical uh, development in and of itself. But the initial version would have literally made just about anything that you would have said as a pastor from your pulpit or even repeated as a, a congregant hate speech and potentially would have put you in jail or at the very least given you a criminal record. So the pressure that we put on by basically engaging the issue and informing our constituency and people then responding and sending in actual submissions, which is of course different from a petition, that had weight because the next iteration of the bill, which is the current iteration, does give protection for bona fide religious preaching and teaching and speech that obviously does not amount to an advocacy to hatred or an incitement to violence, which is hate, which is proper hate speech. So there mm. is a level of protection. We don't believe the protection is necessarily wide enough. And so we do need to again engage with it for us next week we're going to be putting up our position on it again we would encourage people to do that we're going to be communicating on it we're going to be doing some uh, short videos on it we're going to be putting template submissions with uh, dear south africa dear SA, which is an excellent platform for engagement again and we have only until the first of october so very short window of time uh, to comment again but we do want to encourage people when they get the email Please don't leave it sitting in the in-tray. Uh, please open it and activate it. Because government, we have written, we asked them for an extension. They gave 24 days for public comment. That is very short time. How can major organizations and denominations understand it, ass assess the issues, communicate the issues, receive feedback, formulate their response in 24 days? I mean, it's, it's, it's a ridiculously short time. But we were told yesterday uh, that, unfortunately, the government don't want to... Uh, leave 
that the comment deadline open longer than October the 1st. So time is running out on this. So we're going to be on it next week. But very important that people do inform themselves of these issues and engage on these issues because every voice does count and we do have the opportunity to have our voices heard. And while we have that opportunity, I believe that we should make it count. Oh, excellent, Michael. Uh, thanks so much for all the work that you guys do. I'm looking forward to seeing the videos and seeing the petitions and submission templates. Uh, I certainly will also make those public from my own profiles um, as soon as they are available. And uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing um, that there is a great response uh, to this very important bill and submission. Michael, just in terms of uh, folk that are interested in either the hate speech bill um, or alternatively information regarding the uh, disaster um, uh, amendment uh, bill that we spoke about uh, earlier, the disaster management amendment bill, uh, I, I'm assuming that the best place to go would be your website, which is 4sa.org.za. Um, and people can also find you on Facebook by typing in Freedom of Religion South Africa. Um, and uh, freedom yeah. of Religion essay and uh, and liking, following, and sharing posts uh, from there. And do sign up for our newsletter when you go onto our website as well, because that way we will get you latest updates. We we don't spam people. Uh, we only send out information when we believe that it's relevant. We give you a probably about a quarterly update on general things and any alert or uh, issue that we believe needs more urgent attention. So if you want to stay informed and please understand the importance of staying informed on these things, then do sign up for our newsletter on our website. Michael, great to speak to you. As always, enjoy the weather down in the sunny, fairest Cape. Um, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy the Lord's Day. I, I trust that you, uh, that you get to fellowship with friends, family, and uh, praise God. Thank you. God bless you. <laughs> Cheers, Michael. Well, listeners, it is good to be with you on what is clearly a spring day. I'm in a short sleeve shirt because <laughs> it is like, it is warm. I mean, I woke up and I, I just, I had that spring step about myself, just a kind of like a, a, a joyful, <laughs> joyfulness. My wife says that I laugh too much on radio. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is I actually laugh in real life as well. <laughs> Teppo works next to me in the office next door. How's it, Teppo? It's uh, good to be with you uh, this morning, bud. I'm well, thanks, man. I'm well, thanks. Do, I'm do, so I, do I laugh too much, bud? Huh? Do I laugh too much? Uh, yes, you do. <laughs> but not more than me. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I, I guess there is kind of a, a joy of the Lord that believers have. And even more so this time of year. I mean, this is an exciting time of year. The rains are about to come. Actually, I think that's the next kind of step in our cycle of joyfulness is those summer rains, those summer rainstorms that kind of hit Johannesburg at around four o'clock and last for an hour and a half. I can't wait for those to begin and for our dams to fill up. Hey, I read a great um, news article this morning on News 24 as I was kind of scam, scamming, <laughs> scanning through the, the headlines, apparently the dams in Cape Town in like 2017 were down to 15%. It was dire situation. People were thinking of immigrating up to Gauteng. I mean, it really got that bad. <laughs> but um, but uh, today, they literally are sitting at 100%. Cape Town dams are full. Praise the Lord for that. 
um, and pray that he would send some of that water towards uh, towards Port Elizabeth, Kabecha, uh, and uh, East London and the surrounding areas because yeah, they need water so so very badly. Um, as we're speaking, uh, a couple of regular listeners have uh, have said hi. Uh, Tinker says hi. Uh, Tinker is calling in from Robertson. Uh, is that like the wine in terms of Robertson on the wine route? I mean, yeah, way, way to make a man jealous on a Friday morning, Tinker. It's great to have you with us. Uh, Sari says uh, hi. Um, Lester has sent in photo after photo of blooming flowers. Um, and because I have got this wrong so many times and said things like the cosmos are blooming, uh, Lester is clearly an avid gardener and says that the Clivias have flowers in spring. I know my wife is going to be excited to hear that. Uh, she got like a ton of Clivias from her grandfather and uh, planted them all over our garden. And so, uh, yeah, um, it is that time of year. Praise the Lord. He brings in summer, winter, noontime and harvest and uh, this is a time of year that we certainly do enjoy folk if you're listening in this morning I, I do want to tell you how you can engage with us on table talk how you can uh, send in questions and begin the conversation that Tepo and I are about to kick off you can comment if you are watching on Facebook in the comments below uh, you can just comment directly we're looking forward I get to see those right here on our uh, on our conversation deck um, if you are on Twitter if you are a tweeter uh, you can tweet at 657 a.m. if you are a whatsapper or a, um, a telegrammer the telephone number is 082 657 2729 in actual fact for the first time I don't know how I missed this before but on our live stream uh, we have um, kind of like a a, a constant um, a, a constant uh, advert advertisement on the right hand side and, and I just realized it's actually the numbers they write their telegram and the whatsapp numbers are right there uh, of course if you're watching on YouTube uh, you can just uh, on YouTube or, or Facebook you can just comment below and um, but I guess if you're on o open view or DSTV WhatsApp might be the way that you want to communicate with us uh, and engage with us. And then just to remind you that you can phone in and speak to us directly in the studio. And the telephone number uh, in terms of our studio line is 012-334-1322. Tepo, I'd like us to get the conversation started. Um, we are doing questions and answers this morning. The first question is related to giving. giving. Uh, tithing. Um, do I need to give 10% of my gross salary or 10% of my net salary to my local church with a question mark and fire away, brother? <laughs> Is that Teresa? <laughs> <laughs> no, because then you would say something like I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> so, honestly, I think firstly, Let's let's deal with tithing in. Let me use your word: the dispensation we are in. <laughs> there you so, go. You see, I knew we would get you eventually no, 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 in no, the no. end. No, <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, we don't see tithing as a requirement um, in the New Testament. All that we see is that we give proportionally, 
um, to what our earning is and we give sacrificially and we give um, what's the third word that I'm looking for um, well, joyfully, I'll, sacrificially, joyfully. worshipfully are you <laughs> yes. just looking for adjectives, I can spit them out all day <laughs> <laughs> joyfully so so whether, so now I'm, for me it's like you give what you are able to give and we see that in Second Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 um, because that maybe let's read that, let's read that Second uh, Corinthians, Corinthians nine, and then I'm gonna read from the CSB. Tell me if you get it before me, Mark. <laughs> well, I mean, even as you go there, Second um, Corinthians nine. You see, I've I've got it up on my on my laptop, so I can see it. I just got to yeah. spell Corinthians correctly. <laughs> so it sends me into the into the nether. But it says, "Am I not free?" Ah, you see, I went to 1 Corinthians. I was like, hang on, wait, I actually know this text, and it doesn't start like that. Um, 2 Corinthians says, now concerning the ministry to the saints, uh, it is unnecessary for me to write to you, for I know your eagerness, and I boast about you to the Macedonians. Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty so that you would be ready just as I said. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame in that situation. And therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead uh, to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an exhortation. So, but I mean, when we read uh, 2 yeah. Corinthians chapter 9, what's the context? What's going on here? Yeah, so, so basically, um, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of, especially, so when I think of, sorry about that. So um, it says there, now concerning the ministry of the saints, it is necessary for me to write to you. And in Corinthians, also you see in, I think it was, First Corinthians as well, when he spoke about putting money aside for when he comes, that there wouldn't be any taking up of the offering. So, so, so Paul was going around um, to these churches, and there was money that was taken up for the needs of the saints. And so, even here, um, he gives that directive as to when the money should be taken up. But the the point that I wanted to get to is how we are supposed to give. So I think, let me see if it's verse, if it's verse, yes, verse seven. Let's look at from verse six. It says, the point is this, the person who, sh who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do so as he has decided in his heart. It is the first thing. And then not reluctantly or out of compulsion is the second one. And then, since God loves a cheerful giver, there's the joy that you're talking about. <laughs> so, um, so you 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 sow um, generously. You sow um, without reluctance or not out of compulsion or being forced. And then you sow cheerfully. And then we see that um, God loves. Oh, let me let me read let me read verse eight. It says there. Um, yeah, you need to have decided in your heart that I think that's that's one of the most important things because you don't want to be giving 
with with a wrong motive, right? Whether that's ten percent, whether it's twenty percent, and by the way, the word tithe. Um, when we add all the tithes up from the Old Testament, it actually isn't ten percent. It comes up to up to about twenty three point five or point nine percent. And so, whatever it is that you have decided in your heart um, that God has blessed you with, you give in proportion to what God has blessed you with. So I, I, I think I think that sums it up. Um, but you said before or after gross. <laughs> uh, so so let me uh, let me come in and just underline one or two of the things that you've said um, yeah. because I, I think you've covered quite a lot of ground. Um, giving is spoken about as an act of worship, and mm-hmm. it is a very familiar theme in both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, the Israelites worship God by giving. We, we see even in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel is um, gets uh, overshadowed by the murder of Abel as Cain kills his brother. Um, but really, the, the, the story is around worship of Almighty God. And the story is related to them worshiping God as an act of giving uh, in their gifts. The one gave uh, from their flock, the other gave from their, um, uh, from their harvest. Um, but both were giving as an act of worship. One, one gift was accepted, one gift wasn't accepted. Why that may be is the kind of question that Teresa might ask a little bit later. Uh, but the point that I wanna make is that giving is a familiar theme in both the Old as well as in the New Testament. Yeah. Um, and you are right. The Israelites um, tithed. I, I mean, and their tithe amounted to a very large amount. We speak about ten percent uh, in terms of tithes today, but but that doesn't count all, all the um, the the extra gifts that they were giving. Um, and 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 on top of those that 23.3% tithe, they, they were still encouraged to give free will offerings. I, I mean, they were a very generous, very giving people. But really, the tithe didn't just serve to take care of the priests of the day. It was a form of taxation. Um, and and a lot of the monies uh, were spent on the upkeep of the temple, on the upkeep of, of many of the, 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 the ways that the theocracy worked. Uh, in the uh, Old Testament, uh, taking pre- care of both the priests as well as the sacrificial system, which was an incredibly onerous and burdenous system. So as we get into this next dispensation, <laughs> the, the, the church dispensation, um, the, the church having been inaugurated uh, in Acts chapter 2, um, the beginning of the church uh, in terms of the early Jerusalem church, we are never as Christians told or commanded to tithe. However, that does not mean that we are not commanded to give because we are commanded to give. Um, Christians, whilst they don't submit to that legalistic tithing system, um, we are told that we are to give proportionately to what we are given, that, that all good things come from God. And, and so joyfully, we give back to God from our first fruits, much the same as the Old Testament, from our first fruits as an act of worship, and, and that our giving should be in proportion with our income, which really means within the context of the Christian church, um, we all give 
the same. <laughs> proportionately, those who are wealthy will give more, and proportionately, those who are poorer will give less. But because we are giving proportionately, uh, we are, as an act of worship, worshiping alongside one another as equals. Um, and our giving in a Christian context is, is to take care of a diverse range uh, of needs. Uh, we give for the saints, we give for Christian workers, we give to take care of the needs of the poor, we give um, so that foreign missionaries and foreign missions might be extended. Uh, there's a diversity of needs that Christians take care of. Uh, our giving really is a tremendous privilege and it's born out of the great gift which God has given us in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, I really do want to recommend anybody that would like to go away and further study uh, in terms of giving and Christianity and how this works. Uh, a great booklet to download, it is available as a free download off the internet, is The Grace of Giving. I, I think it's The Grace of Giving um, by John Stott. John Stott is like one of my favorite Anglicans, really good guy. Um, and he wrote uh, a really um, brief but but very well-worded um, long-form tract which came from his sermon series uh, through 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 uh, and I would commend that to you for further reading and research it certainly is well worth it before we move on to the next question tips uh, anything yeah. else that you want to add in in terms of giving bud yeah so so I think um, so you said we, we are all supposed to give the same whether rich or poor uh, but then, well, a verse that came, not a verse, a uh, couple of verses that came to mind was um, the widow who gave two mites. Um, so, so Jesus actually says they, um, well, this is, this is in the Gospel of Luke. It says, and he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow uh, putting in two mites. So he said, truly I say to you, this uh, that this poor widow has put in more than all for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for god but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had so so in her poverty <laughs> she gave a big in comparison with what she had she gave um, a big amount and so that's that's basically what it means to give in proportion to what you earn. So is that a big is that a a proportionate percentage to what you earn, or is that um, less or little according to what you earn? So so that's what counts, and obviously it has to come from the heart. Come from the heart. It's an act of worship. I mean, yeah. you can't overstate that enough. That our giving yeah. of our talent, um, you know, how God has kind of constructed you. Are you a musician? Well, play in the worship team. Are you a public speaker? Well, prepare your heart and your mind and your ability to preach God's word. Um, are you a generous giver? Give generously. Our, our, our talents, our treasure, our testimony and our time, all of these things ultimately belong to God and are from God. And so we give from them, each and every one of them, we give back to him joyfully as an mm. act of worship. Tepo, we're going to listen to a voice note. Smokey has sent a voice note in via WhatsApp. Thank you so much for that. Uh, let's take a listen to it. Hi, morning, guys. 
Um, you know what you said, your wife say that you laugh too much. Do you know what, I lost my husband two years ago and it's still a very, very raw inside of me and I wish I could hear him laugh more today. And you know what, every time I hear you laugh, then I think about my hubby and I think, hey, how much I miss his laugh. So enjoy it because you bring a little bit of joy to me every time you laugh. You make me think, you know what, it's okay. I'll be okay. So don't ever stop, stop laughing, please, because I enjoy your laugh. Every time I listen to Table Talk, I enjoy the laughing, and it warms my heart. God bless you guys for bringing a little bit of light into people like me's lives. God bless, and may God keep you guys a very, very long time on air. Thank you so much. My name is Smokey Breely. Have a nice day and a beautiful weekend. And keep you and your family safe. God bless. Bye. Sure, Smokey, nothing can actually prepare one to hear a voice note like that. Obviously, we live on air, so I can't hear the voice notes. Uh, M. Paul, who is keeping the lights on uh, back at home base at Radio Pulpit, um, he is uh, making sure that the voice notes are appropriate before he plays them, uh, and he said that uh, we could play your voice note. Um, but just you know, listening to uh, listening to your heart on your sleeve as you spoke, um, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, th that doesn't cause me to laugh. Uh, I mean, I can just hear the real pain um, and loss that you feel from having lost your husband. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of Christ's words uh, in the Beatitudes, that we mourn with those who mourn. Um, and it's true, we really do. You know, as we, as we just hear the pain in your voice, um, I, I, I really, my heart goes out to you. Um, I, I'm reminded, Smokey, and I just say that because it's another word of Christ um, as he was talking around the death of Lazarus, that we, we don't mourn like others mourn. We, we mourn with hope because we are in Christ. Um, we hope for a joy at the resurrection where we will be reconciled to those who are in Christ. Um, and so we, we mourn in different ways to the Gentiles. But I, I do pray and, and I will pray uh, for you even after the show, Smokey, that uh, the Lord turns uh, your mourning into laughter um, and that he restores um, your joy at the memories that you have with your husband uh, over time. Um, you are right. There's nothing wrong with laughing. Um, <laughs> but my kids, Smokey, uh, I mean, like, I, I, I've been picking them up this week. My wife has been working, uh, which, which is, uh, you know, it's like a massive pain because now all of a sudden, halfway through my working day, I have to get in the car and drive across the city and pick up my, my, my crazy kids from school. But one of the joys of that is that my kids are almost as mad as I am. <laughs> they've, they've taken, they've taken after their father in so many ways rather than their mom. In this, um, we, we will, we will, now they are 18 and 16 and 8. But um, yesterday, we, we pretty much sang crazily at the top of our voices all the way home and laughed and giggled like children. Uh, they certainly keep me young. Um, laughter is wonderful me medicine, and it is a blessing from God when we can do it. Um, thanks so much uh, for that note, 
um, Smokey. I, I really do appreciate it. Um, I see another question uh, just from Jean who says, Thanks, Smokey. I agree. Uh, she sends you a heart, Smokey. You can't see it. It came in via WhatsApp. Um, and Jean also says, please don't stop laughing. Uh, we can hear the joy in your voice and that it is encouraging. Maybe just to launch off Jean's comments, uh, just in terms of encouraging one another. Folk that are listening in uh, this morning, uh, this isn't like deep theology, right? We're not talking about the hypostatic union or the kenosis of Christ. Although those questions might come in. Yesterday, we were doing uh, systematic theology with about 20 people at Crystal Park Baptist Church. And Etienne de Toy, who is my fellow pastor at Crystal Park, was talking about uh, God and talking about um, uh, God in creation and talking about the deity, the Trinity, uh, and then started to broach on the person of Christ and these deep theologies. I want to talk about the theology of laughter for just a moment and the theology of encouraging one another. Friends who are out there, we have gone through a very difficult season. Uh, I mean, we know people that have lost people. We know people uh, that have lost jobs. We know people that are isolated because of health or because of fear. I mean, the bottom line is we're living through a time which is not easy. And let me add something to that, and it's something that we don't talk about often, but Michael Swain from 4SA just reminded me in terms of that disaster amendment bill which is coming up for discussion in Parliament. This has been going on for nearly two years. Two years of our life. I mean, we are talking about a very long period of sustained negativity, sustained problems, sustained trauma, sustained depression like a blanket over so many hearts and minds. Friends, where you can laugh with people, laugh with people, there might be someone right now that the Lord is putting on your heart to give them a call. Can I encourage you to give them a call? I, I just think of local churches. Friends, what happened is at the beginning of lockdown, we all retreated into our homes, right? Because that's what we had to do. The military was on the streets. <laughs> Your home was where the game was at. Now, two years later, we're still under lockdown level three. I mean, it's just insane. We, we, we can hardly gather groups of 50 indoors, 100 max outdoors, but uh, I'm not even aware of many people doing that. Um, the truth is many people are still at home and still struggling with the realities uh, of this world, which has so vastly changed. But one thing hasn't changed. We are created in the image of God as relational beings. Um, God, in Genesis chapter 1, created us in his image. Uh, and he created us in his image. Even in, even in Genesis 1, there is at least indication of this um, I don't want to say complexity, but but relationality in the Godhead. Um, God, his name, Elohim, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, is plural. Um, when God says, let us make man, he says, let us make man. <laughs> That's plural. He's not speaking to the angels because we are not created in the image of the angels. We are created in the image of Almighty God. And he says, let us make man in his image. Uh, we have at least the, the, the idea of the complex nature of God 
where God is one and yet we know from further revelation in the New Testament that he is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. There is relationship in the Godhead. We are created in that relational mindset in terms of our image bearedness. Friends, we need friends. We need to reach out to people. We need to engage with people and interact with people. If you are like a hermit in your room right now, listening to radio, clutching on uh, to the voices and to the laughter of people who you know maybe from just watching them on a live stream, can I just remind you that now might be a great time to pick up the phone and phone a family member or phone a friend from a couple of years ago that you haven't spoken to a while because they're going to need your phone call too. Within the context of local churches, we really need to be loving one another and seeking the gathering and the assembly of the saints wherever we possibly can, because that is the way that God has wired us. And so seek fellowship. Um, if going to a church service of a hundred people is too much for you, well then seek the fellowship of a smaller group. I am reminded that Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 says that we are to encourage one another even as we see the day approaching, not to forsake the gathering of the saints, the fellowship, the assembly. Um, and, and the word assembly there isn't the word ecclesia, which we see used for church in, in so many other parts of the New Testament. It's more, don't forsake the synagoguing, um, because the word is synagogue. It's that idea of coming together on the Sabbath, uh, on, on Saturdays with God's people collectively. That's what Hebrews chapter 10, um, has in mind. And, just to encourage you, we do need to relate to one another as best we can. Laughter of friends, um, speaking to one another, uh, even weeping with one another where that is necessary that we might grieve well when we need to grieve and we, we might commiserate together uh, in, and then encourage one another and exhort one another forward uh, onto new things. I, I do want to say thank you so much for that voice note, Smokey. And thanks, Jean, uh, for that follow-up WhatsApp. Really appreciate that. Tipo, next yeah. question, bud. And uh, I'm asking you this one on the fly as well. I will come in behind with a couple of thoughts because I've had a little bit longer to think about this than you have. <laughs> um, how long is the perfect sermon for this Sunday? How long is the perfect sermon? What should people expect from the pulpit on a given Sunday asked with a question mark? Um, perfect Sunday <laughs> or perfect length of a sermon. Um, I think for me, comfortably, in order to keep the people attentive and not um, lose them along the way because I find that sometimes um, some preachers go long and they're just repetitive. So I think comfortably 35 minutes, um, maybe max 45. But 35, if you're sitting on 35, you're fine. We're going to go away with truth <laughs> and we will remember what you said. Beyond 35 okay. minutes. Um, so we, we're gonna we're gonna come back to this one and camp out on this one for a few minutes after this. Right now we have a caller uh, who has called in. John, uh, thanks for phoning in. Really appreciate uh, speaking to you live on air. Yeah, no problem, guys. Thank you so much for the show, man. I really enjoy listening to you guys every oh, Friday. We enjoy it too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got a question uh, that I just I'd love some clarity on. Um, 
if we, if we, and it might be a bit of topic, so please forgive me, um, but it's, if we read in the book of Isaiah 40, I think it's 43, verse 10 and 11, um, we read, you know, God is talking and he, and he basically says, you know, before me there was no God and after me there will be no God. And in verse 11 he says that uh, the only Savior is me. I am the only Savior. So it's a two-part question. Um, if, if God himself, if God the Father, saying that there is no God after him, and we as Christians believe that obviously Jesus is obviously part of God and we worship him as God, then what was the point of God sending Jesus if God alone says there will be no other after me? And then the second part of the question is, if, um, if, if, Jesus, if God says, God the Father says, I am the only Savior, would, that, would it be a fair statement to make that, let's say, uh, those who believe in the God of Yahweh and not, let's say, not specifically Jesus Christ, if they believe in God as Yahweh, would they still be saved if he did indeed save in the Old Testament uh, like he said he did? I don't know if that makes oh, sense. Well, what great questions. Thank you so much for asking them, John. I, I don't know if you want to stay on so that you can ask clarifying and follow-up questions, but uh, uh, let's just dive into it. I, I've, I've opened up Isaiah 43, and I can see verse 11 and 12 that you've been speaking about. Um, I, I'm just going to read Isaiah 43. Um, and the reason for that is I do think that there is some context, um, really starting at verse 1, but that might be too much to read, but certainly from verse 8, uh, and then flowing again into verse 14. So uh, can I just read that so that we've got the context and we've got the scripture in mind? Um, beginning at verse 8, it says, uh, Bring out a people who are blind yet have eyes, and are deaf yet have ears, and all the nations are gathered together, and the prophets are assembled. Who among them can declare this and tell us the former things? Let them present their witnesses to vindicate themselves so that the people may hear and say it is true. And then verse 10 begins by saying, You are my witnesses, this is the Lord's declaration, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. No God was formed before me, and there will be none after me. I, I am the Lord. Beside me there is no Savior. I alone declared, saved, and proclaimed, and not some foreign God among you. So you are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration, and I am God. Also, from today on, I am he alone, and none can rescue from my power. I act, and who can reverse it? And this is what the Lord says from verse 14, a bit of a change in tone and in temperament. Um, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, says, Because of you, I will send an army to Babylon and bring all of them as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. And this is what the Lord says who makes a way in the sea and a path through raging water, who brings out the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty one together. They lie down, they do not rise again. They are extinguished, put out like a wick. Do not remember the past events, pay no attention to things of old. Look, I'm about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Wild animals, jackals, and ostriches will honor me because I provide water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, 
The people I have formed for myself, I will declare my praise. And then it goes on to talk about Jacob, and it ends off by talking about sweeping away transgressions. So just to pull back again to verse 11, 12, and 13. You know, John, as I'm I'm reading this, I I, I do note that there is clearly um, some uh, contextual um, uh, considerations that we need to bring into place as we're reading the book of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah's um, focal point really is the restoration of Israel. Um, Israel's going through a torrid time. Uh, They've fallen into sin. They've now fallen into judgment. Um, uh, There is a... Um, exile on the cards, a restoration after that, and a bringing back. Um, Israel at once needs to know about judgment, but they also need to know about redemption. They they, they need to know um, that God still has a plan for them, and God ultimately will be their savior. And so into that context, he's writing. Um, and when we get to verse uh, uh, 43, um, we're starting to um, come to a section of Isaiah which is going to be very Masonic. It's going to have very um, Masonic overtones. A lot of talk about this chosen one, this holy one of God, uh, and ultimately it's going to ramp up all the way to verse uh, to chapter 53, where it talks about one who will be crushed, one who will be um, uh, uh, um, upon, uh, who's, who God's wrath will fall upon, and who will ultimately um, redeem God's people um, by his stripes, we will be healed. And so Isaiah's got all of this as he's going through the book um, in mind. He, he, he's, 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 pre, he's going through the book um, and he's heading towards these great and glorious climaxes where he presents the Holy One, the Chosen One, the Christ, the Savior who is to come. In verse 11, he says, I, I am the Lord, Beside me, there is no savior. Um, I, I mean, this would be very important for a people who might be looking for salvation all over the place. And by salvation, by the way, I'm talking about temporal salvation from the Assyrian armies or the Babylonian armies that are all around them uh, that are about to take them into exile. And yet the language here isn't temporal in nature. It seems that, that Isaiah has the present context of Israel in mind, but he certainly has a deeper plumb line which he is wanting them to mind because the, the, the language seems to be salvation in terms of eternal salvation. He says, I alone declared, saved and proclaimed and not some foreign God among you and you are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration and I am God. Also from today on, I am he alone and none can rescue from my power. I act and who can, reser- uh, who can reverse it? Um, uh, in this, we, we have a number of the attributes of God on display. Uh, for example, the uh, uh, immutability of God that he doesn't change. Um, the uniqueness of God that he alone is unique. He is transcendent. He is apart from his creation. Uh, the um, um omnipotence, the omnipotence of God, uh, that he is all powerful and that none will stand against him. Um, But we also have on display uh, things like the grace of God, um, the mercy of God, in that salvation will be offered and salvation will come to his people. 
it seems as if the salvation isn't going to be a present salvation, that it is some time off. He talks about desert and a future time where he will give a drink to his chosen people. Uh, and then those very famous verse in verse 19, that he will do something new, um, that he will make a way in the wilderness, rivers uh, in the desert, and uh, that, that there's going to be this massive change. Now, as we get towards those, the end of that servant song, um, Isaiah's servant song, um, we, we find out that there will be a time in the future um, where there will be a great restoration of God's people, a great restoration um, even of all the nations of the world coming to Zion and praising uh, at Zion um, because God's holy and anointed one has been installed there. And this, of course, will sync up with many of the Psalms and with many of the other prophetic literature uh, that we have written in and around Isaiah and then even after Isaiah in terms of the post-exilic um, uh, prophets, the minor prophets, as they talk uh, about this this coming king. Um, which we don't, which we see realized in the person of Jesus Christ in terms of himself proclaiming, proclaiming himself as a king and being recognized as a king by the people around him, but, but not actually um, taking his throne in terms of his first incarnation. Now, as we come to verse 11, if, if I've understood you correctly, um, are you asking um, the question in relation to Jesus Christ? Um, as to uh, is this God the Father speaking or is there more than one person speaking in this passage itself? Um, could you just clarify the question? The point hey, John, are you still is, on the line? Yeah, can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, I can hear you fine. Okay. Um, I guess the crux of my question is if, you know, if Abraham uh, was saved by God, by Yahweh, uh, because of his righteousness... Would it be a fair yes. statement to say that anyone who believes in, like, let's perhaps let's take, a, for example, the Jewish nation or Jewish people that believe in the God of Yahweh, would would they not also then qualify to be saved if they are indeed righteous, just as Abraham was? Oh, sure. Okay, I, I understand. So Abraham uh, in the Old Testament um, was saved um, by faith. Uh, we read about that uh, in terms of Paul's discussion of Abraham in Galatians chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. Um, Abraham was ultimately saved by faith. Um, if, he's righteous, if by righteousness you're talking about um, like law, circumcision, the truth is that his faith came even before righteousness. And then the question is, well, faith in what? Was it faith in Yahweh? Um, uh, yes, certainly. Um, Abraham believed God. He believed the promises that God made, and he acted on them. God came to Abraham when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, called him out of it, uh, and Abraham started to move. He, he started to move towards the promised land. And so um, certainly his faith resulted in works which ultimately glorified God. But Abram's faith was in the promise that was to come. Um, Abram was, would have been in absolutely no um, doubt as to his own um, fallibility, as to his own unrighteousness, his own sinful state. Uh, in fact, if you read the book of Genesis, 
uh, obviously penned by Moses many, many years later, um, but certainly would have been passed down to Moses via oral tradition um, and then by divine inspiration of God. The, the truth is, Abraham's story isn't a story of the kind of righteousness we would expect in a man who could save himself by his own righteousness. Um, Abraham's righteousness um, is given to him um, ultimately by faith. His faith is in the promise that was to come, a promise which had been made in Genesis chapter 3 as God, even at the fall of man into sin, when Eve uh, sinned and fell short of the glory of God, uh, took of the apple, shared it with Adam, her husband, as Adam ate and then through Adam, sin came to all men. Through that one man, Adam, sin comes to all men. Uh, even in the midst of that terrible tale of the fall of man into sin, um, a promise is made that there will come a time where the um, the uh, the descendants of the snake uh, or the snake uh, will be crushed uh, by the seed of the woman. And that seed is then threaded the whole way through the Old Testament so that even Abram's story, where Abram is given the promises of God in Genesis chapter 12, even when Abram is given the promise of land and descendants and renown and fame and that God would make a great name for himself, he's promised that through his seed all the nations of the world will be blessed. And again, that's further clarified um, by Paul in the book of Galatians, um, where that seed is in fact the promise of Christ. And so what we see in Abram's story, what we see in, um, in each and every one of the Old Testament story is sinners that ultimately need to be saved by God who acts graciously and mercifully to them. And what we have in the Old Testament is a growing revelation that this promise which God has made, this promise of salvation, this promised seed um, will be a, a Messiah figure, a kingly figure, um, a savior who will be crushed even um, on behalf of his people. And that then is obviously realized in the person of Christ. Jesus Christ is born, um, God with us, Emmanuel. Um, he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the mechanism, the chosen mechanism by which God then redeems his people, buys them out of this sinful world um, and uh, renews them um, and then uh, makes them fit uh, to worship him. So in the Old Testament, just in summary, simplified, um, the Old Testament saints are saved in the same way that New Testament saints are saved. Not by obedience to a law, but New Testament saints are saved by putting their faith and their trust in a promise which has already come, the person of Jesus Christ. Old Testament saints are putting their faith and their trust in a promise which has not yet come, Jesus Christ, who comes into the world, um, God with us, dwelling with us, um, tabernacling with us presencing himself with us, demonstrating the person of God, and then dying on a cross, absorbing the wrath of God that we might live. Um, John, does that answer your question? Um, yeah, I think, I think that does clarify it a bit. So, so in essence, what you're saying is, um, obviously God is, is saying that he's, he's, he's the only one that can save, and there's a promise that's to come. So if we take, for example, those that would believe in the God of Yahweh, but not believe in the promise of Jesus that they then in fact rejected uh, the, the saving, I guess the saving grace of God. Is that, is that a fair comment to make? 
Yeah, so I guess now again we'd go to Paul and maybe we'd go to the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, where, where Paul actually deals with this in, in quite a lot of depth. Okay. Um, you know, in, in Romans 9, he, he asks the question, well, then what about Israel? Um, and, he, and he's got all of these questions about Israel. They've rejected Jesus. You know, like, like, okay. like what's going on? How is this even possible how could they have missed him they, they were given the the law and they were given all of these things they had all of these pointers and yet they missed jesus christ how is this possible and the answer that paul gives is that not all israel was israel and ultimately those who are israel are israel by faith and um, he, he gives an example of, of two sons um in galatians I, and i'm just thinking of galatians because i happen to have read it um, now I've got a bit of a blur. It was either this morning or yesterday morning. Um, but 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 in the reading of it, uh, the analogy which he gives is the two sons, um, Hagar, uh, the the son of Hagar and the son of of uh, Sarah, and uh, the one son represent. They both come from the same father, and yet the one son represents slavery slavery to the law and slavery to sin. The other son represents freedom uh, and he represents salvation uh, and the point that Paul is making using that analogy is not all Israel is Israel and Israel wasn't saved by obedience to the law if anything the law demonstrated their desperate need for salvation outside of themselves they were saved ultimately by a gracious act of almighty God um, an act which required faith um, again, now this time not Paul, just so that we can mix it up a bit. Uh, let's say the writer of the Hebrews. <laughs> let's give him the name Barnabas for lack of any other name. Um, but I have no clue who wrote Hebrews. Um, but in Hebrews, we have this faith wall. Um, in chapter 11, um, just person after person, demonstration after demonstration, that justification is ultimately by faith that Abram exercised faith, and um, that after yeah. Abram, each of the judges exercised faith, the kings exercised faith. God's people have always exercised faith, um, and it is that which saves. Yeah, okay. Hey, awesome. John, Thank those you so are great much. questions. I really appreciate Thank you, you so much for asking them. Yeah, no problem at all. And, and I'm looking forward um, to going back and rereading Isaiah. I haven't read Isaiah in at least... A year and so um uh, uh, the old, an old testament read is on my uh, reading plan uh, to begin kind of soon and so i'm looking forward to that uh, when when i hit isaiah 43 i'll be thinking of this conversation thanks for having it all right great thank you so much guys have a blessed weekend cheers mate well there's a couple of questions that are are coming in on um on WhatsApp as well as WhatsApp. It seems like everyone asks questions via WhatsApp. I, I want to say to John, thanks so much. You were the first call-in question that we've received on Table Talk. Um, and so uh, if there is an applause um, thingy uh, in court, um, there you go. Well done, John. <laughs> you get the bouquet of the day. Um, that was great. Uh, we got questions here from Angie as well as from Teresa, who I'm sure is just asking for a friend. I'm looking at the time. Can you believe it's 20 past 10? Teppo, where's the time gone? 
we were supposed to do like an ad break and have um, and have uh, some musical interlude. So what we're going to do, and uh, Mpo, thank you for being so quick on the applause there. Uh, we are going to go to a musical interlude. I, I didn't announce the music that we listened to um, before the show. Uh, we listened to Hallelujah, sung by JJ featuring Neville D. Uh, that was what we opened the show with. And uh, now we will be going to another song. Uh, and uh, uh, after that, we will come back with questions and answers from Teresa, from Angie, and a conversation on what is the right amount of time to be preaching a sermon on the Sunday. <laughs> Looking forward to chatting to you soon. Well, folk, it is so good to be back with you for the second hour of the show you listen to. It is All About You by Etienne Bausche, um, uh in terms of the musical interlude. And then a couple of ads to pay for the water and lights and to keep the station going. Thank you for to Impo for uh, babysitting us so far and making sure that uh, everything uh, is operating well in studio really appreciated the voice notes also appreciated the interaction in terms of dial-in uh, let me just remind you how you can interact uh, with the show this morning um, you can tweet if you are a twitter um, you can tweet with us by on the handle at 657 am i get to see those right here uh, on my dashboard uh, you can also WhatsApp or Telegram. Uh, the telephone number is 082-657-2729. Uh, looking forward to voice notes um, and other interactions. I see the couple of the interactions that we've had in over the last uh, a few minutes have been WhatsApps uh, from Teresa as well as from Angie and now others. So uh, looking forward to that. Um, and then you can dial in. I love the idea of engaging with listeners live on air. Uh, you can dial in. Our telephone number is 012 and then 334-1322. Let me repeat that so that you got it. 012-334-1322. Um, looking forward to speaking to you live on air as you hit tepo with your biblical questions and as I come in at the back and uh, uh, after I've had a little bit of time to think. John, the one thing that I didn't say to you um, as you were talking, uh, I'm sorry about that. I read Isaiah 43 last night. <laughs> and the reason why I read it last night um, is because I was sitting in a systematic theology class and we were looking at the Trinity. And as we looked at the Trinity, we were looking at passages in the Old Testament which really throw us forward uh, and, and, and look at who the person of Jesus was, who the person of God the Father is, who the person of the Spirit is uh, in the Old Testament. And in Isaiah 43, uh, verse 10 and 11, the passages that we that we just read, um, was in those notes uh, as we went through it as one of the passages which at least help us to dwell upon the possibility of the complexity um, the simplicity of God in that God is one, uh, and yet God existing in more than one person. And so, um, yeah, um, really, um, uh, really thanks for that uh, engagement. I want to read a, a couple of um, a couple more messages. Um, let's just start with Angie. 
yesterday one of our foreign car guards said that the government said no more car guards from 4 p.m. yesterday and she's in shock. Um, all these lovely people pay a fee to be car guards and have no income. Can this be true? I'm glad you asked the question, but in this case, I'm not going to answer because I have no clue. And that is outside of the ambit of Genesis uh, to Revelation, except for this. Because the Bible does speak about everything, doesn't it? And over and over again as a refrain, both in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, we have this idea of taking care of the foreigners that are in our midst, those who are vulnerable, um, those who are, are struggling. And so, Angie, I think you are right to care about your car guard, um, the person who's assisting you um, uh, in terms of taking care of your motor vehicle. You're right to care about them. Uh, I actually think that might be the heart of God, just stirring uh, within you and I, I would encourage you to speak to them clearly he's in fear that uh, maybe uh, there will be some kind of xenophobia or some kind of um, uh, legal something against him um, and so yeah maybe speak to him now would be a great time to speak to him speak to him about what here's the thing you can talk to him about his fear and you can make him feel fine for today but more importantly speak to people about things of eternal consequence <laughs> Car guards, just like CEOs of multinational companies, need Jesus. They need to hear that Jesus is the Messiah, that he came into this world, bore the wrath of God for the sins of man, and that all men everywhere, Sipos <laughs> uh, and Stephans, need to put their faith and their trust in him that they might live. Um, if you care about the car guard, um, talk to them about their fears, um, talk to them about their concerns. And maybe tell them that you don't know anything about that. Um, maybe check out in other places. But ultimately, do make sure that you share the love of Jesus Christ with them. Um, yeah, thanks for that, Angie. Um, Teresa says, greetings all. Trust you are great. We're great. Thanks, bud. Um, Tepo laughs more than you do, by the way. Really? Tepo laughs more than me. I'm like, I'm disappointed to hear that. Plus, your wife's got funny jokes. <laughs> no wonder you laugh a lot. Now, I'm reading this uh, uh, on my phone and it's not working out so great. So let me just change to a, a wider, a wider angle uh, look. Um, so personal question, personal questions, uh, Teresa, there is a gear change in the way that you're speaking to us, brother. <laughs> personal questions with Galatians in mind. Exactly when did Paul get saved? The vision he saw from Christ didn't have the gospel. Ah, that's a, that's a very mighty fun, interesting question, Teresa. Uh, I love it. Uh, second question, I'm, I'm thinking Galatians chapter 3 verse 19. Didn't transgressions happen at the fall of man? And yet the law seemingly came at a later stage. Shouldn't the law have been given at the beginning of Genesis? Please clarify. <laughs> Another very good question. And then uh, asking for a friend. How should one explain the idea of the Holy Spirit causing people to randomly laugh at a church service? What's actually happening to cause that? Well, bottom line, Teresa, let's, uh, let's start with uh, number three. The Holy Spirit doesn't make people randomly laugh at church services. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of order. If you want to test me on that, um, 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with a lot of um, messed up practices in the local church of Corinth. And from chapter 12 to chapter 14, he is dealing specifically with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is active. 
active. He is active in distributing gifts amongst the members of local churches and the members of the wider body. The Holy Spirit is um, uh, is there for our edification. These gifts are there for our edification. But towards the end of chapter 14, after he's spoken about love in chapter uh, 13 and then the gift of tongues compared to the gift of prophecy in chapter 14, towards the end of chapter 14, he deals very specifically with worship. And the whole point of that passage is that our worship needs to be ordered, orderly, orderly worship, not rolling around on the floor, um, out of our minds, laughing as if we are drunk men. Um, uh, Paul would have a very dim view on some of the practices of uh, Corinthian-like churches in our day and age. Shame on us for tolerating it. So that's your third question, um, asked and answered. Uh, let's just consider Galatians chapter 3 for a moment. I'm just going to open up my, I'll just toggle really, uh, to my Bible and go to Galatians. Galatians, I've spelt it right for a change. Chapter 3, there you go. Um, and in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, uh, we have the purpose of the law. Now, this passage I definitely read yesterday. It is in my mind, and I can actually remember preaching it. I, I, I preached this about 10 years ago. Uh, Galatians was one of the first books of the Bible that I preached. Why do you think I preached Galatians as a book of the Bible, uh, Tepo? Why Galatians, bud? Why, did it, why, why was that the second book that I preached after 1 Timothy? at uh, Crystal Park Baptist Church. You've got to unmute yourself, mate. You have to unmute yourself, else no one can hear your laughter and your joy in the please, Spirit. Please, Galatians please, chapter please, 5. Please. <laughs> the book of Galatians, isn't it? Um, second book that you preach at Crystal Park. So context matters. <laughs> but why would you preach that? You preach what's the big the picture day? of Galatians? What, what What's the book of Galatians all about? Well, first... Firstly, I'm thinking the law, freedom from the law. Yeah. Um, so that's, so now I'm trying to think of... No, 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 yeah, I mean, you, you, you're there, you're talking about the law, you're talking about freedom from the law. So Galatians really is, a, a li uh, let me tell you, so that we don't have dead time on radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Galatians, the, the big picture of Galatians really matches the big picture of the book of Romans. I figured it would take me about 10 years to preach the book of Romans because I'm so incredibly slow. <laughs> so um, Romans wasn't on the card. Uh, cards. Romans is 16 chapters. Galatians is six chapters. I figured I could get through Galatians in like one or two years. And I think I was right. It, it took about one or two years to get through the book of Galatians. Um, but the main point of Galatians, look, if I was a better preacher, I'd preach it faster. <laughs> but the main point of Galatians is that justification is by faith alone. And so yeah. as a new pastor and a new church, as I came to Crystal Park, I started with 1 Timothy because I wanted to speak about church leadership. I wanted people to know what pastors did and what pastors didn't do. I also wanted people to have an idea of what deacons did and what deacons didn't do and deal with some of the, the, the softer issues that Paul deals with at the end of 1 Timothy. But, but the book of Galatians, I wanted to set the stage for the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul does uh, for the first three chapters. He, he deals with the gospel of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. Now, in Galatians chapter 3, 
um, we, we have this discussion of the law. He, he talks um, at the beginning of um, the chapter about justification through faith. He calls the Galatians foolish, which I think is hysterical. And he says that Abraham, who believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness, um, which was the passage that was uh, quoted by John before. Um, and then he goes on and he talks about the law and the promise, the, the, this promise that I was speaking about, um, this promise that was to come, this promise ultimately, who is Jesus Christ, cursed and hanging on a tree for our sins. Um, but then he, he wants to talk about the law. He, he kind of like wants to sew it up and he gives us the purposes of the law. He tells us why did God give us the law in verse 19, which is the, the verse that you quoted, Teresa. Why then was the law given with a question mark? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. And the law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. And now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Oh, it's amazing how everything from today's show seems to be coming to a point of singularity, the oneness of God. Um, is the law therefore contrary to God's problems? Absolutely not, Paul says. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. And before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian, that's uh, uh, a pedagogue uh, in the Greek, if I remember correctly, our teacher until Christ, so that we would we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ. Jesus. I'm just looking at the time. We've still got 20 minutes left. Uh, let me tell you what's going on in this passage of Scripture. You, you need to read it for a start, Teresa, from verse 19 all the way through to verse 26, because then you get the, the kind of the rhythm uh, of what's going on. And what's really going on is Paul is saying, hey, listen here, if the law doesn't save you, the law, if the law doesn't save you, if the law um, has an inability to um, act for the salvation of men and women, just like you and me. If under the law, we are condemned to death, if we so desperately need Jesus Christ as our savior, um, if we so desperately need a savior outside of ourselves, then what, was the, what on earth was the law given for? Or what was the point? And the point is this, the law was given for the sake of transgressions. It, it, it acts like a mirror. Um, we look in the law, and we see our sinful selves for who we are. We see our desperate need for a savior. But not only that, the law was also um, given to imprison sin, you could say. Um, and we see that in verse 23, uh, that, that, that sin is constrained for a period of time because the law um, constrains the hearts of even sinful men. Verse 24 and 5, the law, though, is also a teacher. It's not just a mirror. It's not just a jail warder. The law is also a teacher. The, the pedagogue in, in, uh, in Greek culture uh, was like almost a, 
um, a household slave whose chief responsibility was to discipline the children, make sure that they did things like get to school on time and, and do their homework and these kinds of things. He, he had the power really to, to discipline children, to, to chase children. Who did the Lord chase us to? And the answer in verse 24 is the person of Jesus Christ. The bottom line is the law doesn't save, but the law acts like a mirror. And this is why the law is so beautiful. This is why the law is so perfect, because it acts like a mirror. It shows us our sin, because it acts like a teacher, drives us toward Christ, and because it imprisons sin uh, until the fullness of God's plan uh, has come. Um, that was a great question, Teresa. As I am going back to your first question, let me get there as quickly as possible. You always ask three questions. You, you're like the Trinitarian of quest, of questionnaires. <laughs> I love it. Um, personal question, with Galatians in mind, exactly when did Paul get saved? The vision he saw from Christ didn't have the gospel. Um, so Paul basically gives his... Um, uh, he gives his testimony at three places in the book of Acts. Um, obviously, he gives his testimony to Luke, who then records it. I think that's Acts chapter 9. And then he gives his testimony before kings, uh, Festus and Felix, in, in Acts chapter 22. And uh, I think in Acts chapter 24. But I'm, yeah, uh, I'm, I might have my chapter divisions uh, wrong there. In both times, he, he basically speaks as his road, uh, as his trip to Damascus, as the turning point events um, in terms of his faith, that he was confronted with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, this holy vision. And it was on the basis of this holy vision and his understanding of all of these things uh, that he was called and arrested um, in his heart uh, and turned to God, that he was regenerated, given given faith, given um, given belief and confidence in Jesus Christ as his Lord and his uh, Savior. And so I, I would credit um, Paul's salvation as a Damascus Road experience where Jesus Christ um, spoke to him, gave him a vision, and commissioned him to go. Uh, he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and his repentance, the fruit of his repentance, is that he did indeed go to the Gentiles and proclaim and teach the gospel uh, to all the lands. Tips, anything that you want to add there, bud? So firstly, <laughs> just an observation. I haven't actually thought this, this through. Um, yes, like the first thing that we see is that he says... Lord, <laughs> and then you come to First Corinthians, um, and we know that no one is able to say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, so that's just an observation. And then we see that he is blinded, um, but when when Ananias um, talks to him and he regains his vision, you see yeah. that there he gets filled with the Spirit. So nobody gets filled with the Spirit without being saved <laughs> so so right unless you're one of unless you're one of john's disciples i'm just kidding okay we'll talk about uh acts chapter 19 at another stage <laughs> yeah so so well i think uh, mm, no 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 uh, there was a red herring sorry don't go there yeah, yeah, don't go there yeah. Teresa ask that question next week <laughs> <laughs> yeah but 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 right in between there um so we have him saying Jesus is Lord, right? He says, Lord. <laughs> and then secondly, we see that he's filled with the Spirit. 
Um, and that's when he, when Ananias sees him. Um, so he regained his sight and he was full of the Holy Spirit. So there, you cannot be full of the Holy Spirit if you are not saved, because that comes from um, believing the gospel. Thanks for the question, Teresa. Really appreciate it. Uh, you can also read um, uh, Paul's own testimony of himself. I think in Galatians chapter 2, um, he talks about his but God, but when God moment, which is just like one of the coolest um, but conjunctions in the whole of Scripture. I, I just love that passage. It, it is a great passage. Another question from Prue. Uh, uh, Prue, thank you so much for the greeting. Really appreciate it. Um, Prue asks, please explain to me, who are the Gentiles? Uh, and tips, maybe you can uh, get us going on this. Who are the Gentiles? Are we not all the seed of Abraham? What a great question. Thanks, Prue. We'll clarify that for you. Tips. You start. Who are the Gentiles? So, <laughs> so I had I had a, I had a similar question from my wife the other day, but it wasn't about Gentiles because some 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 versions use the word Greeks. <laughs> yeah. So now, but yeah. So 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 then we we had a look at it and then we were like, are Greeks in this text? Hellenos versus Ethnos. So Gentiles would normally be Ethnos. Hellenos would be. Uh, would be Greeks. Um, so which yeah. passage are we thinking about here? Because if it's the Old Testament, I mean, no, that's... New Testament. <laughs> yeah, again. Okay. Yeah, so, so basically Gentiles are non-Jews, right? Um, and, so, and so everyone who's a non-Jew is a Gentile. And then sometimes, so, so I actually read it, it was, oh, it was First Corinthians, where the gospel was first preached to the Jews, and then it says the Greeks. <laughs> so, so um, yeah. So, Gentiles are non-Jews. That's a simple answer. Oh, that's a that's actually a great answer, but I know I yeah. think I know why your wife asked that question. Um, yeah. We're actually reading the Bible uh, on a WhatsApp group together at the moment, and we've been reading through. I, I spoke about Galatians, but also been you know gone through the Book of Ephesians uh, recently. And uh, in the book of Ephesians, what, chapter 2 um, and chapter 4, large, uh, well, chapter 2, certainly, large portions of that chapter are devoted to the, the breaking down of the dividing wall between Jew and Gentiles. And so that, that might have sparked the conversation in Lerato's mind uh, as she was thinking through that. Uh, and your answer is correct. Anybody who is not a Jew is a Gentile, which means yeah. um, by virtue of reality, you and I together, black and white, are both Gentiles. I am Mark the Gentile. You are Teresa the Gentile. That, that makes us really, really similar. In, fa in fact, in a Christian church in South Africa on any given Sunday, we are likely to be more homogenous than we might think. <laughs> you know, we like we look at our church and we think black and white. There is something amazing going on here. And it is quite amazing, but it's always been like that in the Christian church, in the New Testament church, um, in the year dot, <laughs> when the church was formed. It was a very diverse uh, institution made up, not so much of black and white, although there are stories. I'm thinking of Acts chapter, oh, the church in Corinth. What's that? Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter, yeah, Acts chapter 11. There, there are stories of of African men in the church as leaders, even in the church. Uh, but the the big 
multi-ethnicity that's going on in New Testament churches. It is this discussion between black, and not between black and white, but between Jew and Gentile. I mean, the Jews in the first century weren't so keen on Gentiles. I mean, they wouldn't even eat with them. They wouldn't share knives and forks with them. They wouldn't, you know, they, they, they would keep their distance, like uh, uh, rather than be besmirched by hanging out with those stinky Gentiles. Um, but the truth is that that what they didn't realize was in the story of the prodigal son, while the Gentiles might be the prodigal son, stinky and sitting in the swine food, trying to eat the pods of the pigs, um, they were the older brother, um, the older brother at home uh, that was in just as desperate need for salvation. Because all man needs to be saved, whether Jew, whether Gentile, whether black, whether white, whether man, whether woman, whether slave, whether free men, whether rich, whether poor, whatever color of the smarty box we are, we need Jesus. And that's why the church is made up of all men. In actual fact, if you're a church of all men that are the same, and you look at your suburb, and your suburb is more diverse than the church that you are in, there's something kind of weird about that. Uh, it certainly doesn't reflect what we see in the New Testament church uh, and the kinds of churches that if we want to aspire towards New Testament look and feel, <laughs> we would certainly aspire for more diversity than what we sometimes see in the churches around us. Hey, any thoughts on that, Tips? No, I think we've covered it, but there's another question on Facebook. <laughs> ah, shoot. Did I miss yeah, it? From, Is it a tough from, one? You can do it. <laughs> He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, some have said that this means that Paul shares his opinion and that this is not authoritative scripture because he says, to the rest I say, I oh, yes. the Lord. Yeah, I, know, I, know this, I know this passage quite well. Um, yeah. And, it, and it's, a, it's a really, really important passage. Um, yeah. It's, it's uh, what, in verse 12 where he says yeah. that, yes. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Um, thanks so much for adding that uh, to Scripture, Paul. It is very helpful when we are talking about the context of marriage and remarriage and divorce. Um, yeah, so as we come into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is speaking to a Corinthian church. The church is a mess. I mean, it's really, it, it's, it's horrible. They've got a man sleeping with his mother-in-law. They've absolutely messed up tongues. They are, uh, the, 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 the understanding of the Holy Spirit is a little bit broken. I mean, they are saints. They love Jesus and Paul loves them for it and he, and he commends them and prays for them at the beginning of the letter. But, but really, uh, it's not a church in a good place. And one of the areas that they clearly are struggling is the area of relationships uh, between men and women, between um, men that want to get married, women who want to get married or don't. Um, they're, they're living at a time where... Um, uh, the, the church is about to come under immense persecution. Uh, and so Paul is speaking into this context, this context of uh, a, 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 um, a culture which is quite accepting of divorce, but 
but a God who isn't. And Paul is speaking into all of this, and he is trying to convey to the listeners that, that marriage is a good thing. <laughs> marriage is a beautiful thing. Um, uh, if, if, yeah, mar- marriage is a delight. And those who are not called to celibacy should get married. <laughs> um, Paul does say, hey, listen, yeah, there, there's some serious persecution which is coming. And so he, his recommendation is if you cannot get married under those conditions, you don't, because then you're not going to be have to bear the burden of responsibility of taking care of a wife or, or fearing for your husband. Um, but in reality, marriage is not only permissible, it is delightful. That's certainly been my experience of marriage. Um, when he gets to uh, verse 12 and thereabouts, he, he's now talking about divorce. Uh, and he's making a case for divorce. Uh, it's in a wider conversation, a, a wider argument as to the conditions by which a man might leave a woman or a woman might leave a man. And he's also encouraging people to stay for the sake of Christ wherever possible. And certainly to stay, if, um, uh, and certainly not to choose to go, not to choose to be the party that leaves. Um, but he says, and that's what the question is, uh, is Paul just giving a cursory comment here in verse 12 when he says, but I, not the Lord, say to the rest. And I, I don't believe that's what's going on in verse 12. Uh, I think in verse 12, Paul is saying, hey, listen, yeah, as you, as you think of my conversation, as you think of my argument, all of this, you, you can see in the words of Jesus Christ. You can certainly see it in the whole sway of Scripture from Genesis through to Malachi and then in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Um, he's saying you can find um, plenty of biblical evidence for what I'm trying to convey to you. But in verse 12, I'm about to tell you something which is unique. This is, this, this is authoritative this is biblical and this is scriptural and this is what I, Paul, am saying. If any brother has an unbelieving wife she uh, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. So I would say that verse 12 is as binding as all of scripture is binding. But verse 12, what Paul is saying is, I'm giving this authoritative instruction. You haven't heard this before. Um, uh, 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 you, you haven't actually covered this. Um, before in this explicit detail. Tips, anything to add there as we begin to unwind? And I still want to say what the perfect length of a sermon is. <laughs> okay, so so um, if you look at, I think it's verse 25, where he speaks about he's got the Holy Spirit, <laughs> right? So remember, Paul is inspired. Um, well, the, the, the Bible is inspired and Paul has chosen to write this. So if we take God's word as authoritative, that includes what Paul said. Um, and also what that, 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 um, that addition of what he says there, I, not the Lord, is basically, I am not quoting <laughs> what has been written before. But it is still as authoritative because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Thanks for that, Tips. Yeah, so in terms of the perfect sermon, for this Sunday, pastor or sheep, as you sit under the teaching of the Word of God, the perfect length for a sermon this Sunday will be the sermon that you listen to. (laughs) The sermon which penetrates your heart and the sermon that you act upon. Uh, I do pray that you go to church this Sunday. I do pray that you sit under the teaching of God's word and that it is a means of grace to your heart and to your soul. Encourage your pastor. 
hey, you're going through difficult times, you're feeling disconnected from the church, I promise you there are pastors all over South Africa who are feeling so disconnected from the sheep because of the constraints uh, in which they are shepherding. Um, let your heart go out to them, speak to them, maybe give them a WhatsApp call, uh, encourage them, uh, do what you can to uh, allow them to serve you with joy, recognizing that some of them <laughs> this Sunday are going to preach one hour and 30 minute sermons, and some of them are going to preach sermons that are much, much shorter, um, mm-hmm. but encourage them one way or the other. Um, for myself, if I had to just be technical, I, I do think that 30, 35 minutes is probably the sweet spot for the church that I serve. But I do recognize that every single church is slightly different. Um, and every single group of believers has been given a pastor as an under-shepherd by our great shepherd, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Um, uh, do, do help them to enjoy the task which they have been given. Friends, our, our prayers go out to all the elders and the deacons who hold the line in local churches all over our country. Um, I, I do trust that you go about your task with great joy, um, that you go about it with zeal, that you are holy in life, being an example to the flock which you serve, uh, that you might call men to follow you even as you follow Christ, uh, as well as to our missionaries serving in foreign fields, uh, recognizing that if it's difficult to be relational <laughs> in South Africa right now, for those who are disconnected from family and friends because of geographic proximity, it must be really, really tough. And so um, do pray for those who serve your local church as missionaries and maybe drop them a note or find out how you might do that uh, from your pastor. We pray for and we give much respect to our police our first responders, our defense force who are on our streets, <laughs> uh, those who dispense justice, our firefighters, our paramedics, our nation's nurses, all those medical personnel who have been serving so sacrificially for such a long time. Um, you are in our thoughts and our prayers, as well as correctional facility officers who have been in the news of late. <laughs> our prayers go out for you. Um, that you would go about your tasks with excellence and excellence and conduct your duties with fairness and righteousness and justice. Um, even those who head correctional facility organizations. Um, you've been listening to Table Talk uh, with me, your host, Mark. We're going to be going to news next. And so until next week, Friday, walk wisely, live holy and testify zealously to the praise and glory of God. Amen. <laughs>